Hey guys, Bill Spadia here, back for our speaking podcast. I'd like to welcome back a pretty smart guy. His name is Dr. Jonathan Lesser. He is an adjunct fellow at the Manhattan Institute, and uh, he's an expert on energy, the economy, and he has been uh, one of the, the uh, smart minds behind the great folks at Affordable Energy New Jersey as we fight for sensible energy policy in New Jersey, energy policy that reflects fact, not fiction, energy policy that makes energy affordable for the average person. Doc, welcome back to the speaking Thanks, Bill. Podcast. I appreciate you having me on again. So let's jump right into it. Uh, you and I were talking uh, offline for a second about this study that came out of Rutgers University, and I'm going to do my best not to talk about the billion-dollar taxpayer subsidy that goes to Rutgers every single year that I think should be redlined out of the budget. I'm going to try not to get on, on a tangent with that, but taxpayers are paying for this stuff, and they came out with a study saying that the, the sea levels are going to rise to a dangerous level over the next few decades to the point where... Um, New Jerseyans should actually pay higher taxes to mitigate this. Uh, let's first start with the premise of their discussion. You've read the report. We have history of, of sea level changes going back, you know, uh, in recent history, at least 100 years. What do you say about what was presented by Rutgers regarding sea level rise? Well, I mean, if, if you look at the actual sea level data, uh, it's been going up uh, at an average of you know, two to three millimeters per year for the last hundred years. Now, there's no evidence that it's suddenly accelerated. Uh, nothing's really changed. So if you go out another century, at, at three millimeters a year for a century, that's 300 millimeters. That's basically, uh, if, my, if I'm doing math in my head correctly, about um, oh, 10 inches, eight or 10 inches, something like that. So when they talk about sea level rise going up several feet or more in the next de few decades, I, I simply don't know what, you know, what that's based on in terms of, you know, compared to the actual evidence. Now they say it's based on satellite recordings and data where they, they've extrapolated a 2.4 millimeter rise to a three millimeter rise saying that 0.6 represents a 25% increase. So therefore, if you take that out over time, all of a sudden you get to five feet. Has, have we ever seen uh, anything like that happen in, in not only the past hundred years, but just speaking to, to the climate, um, it seems that the coastlines are still pretty much intact the same way they have been for a thousand years. Well, I mean, you can go back to the ice age when the sea level rise levels were hundreds of feet lower because all that water was in glaciers that were, for example, uh, you know, Manhattan was covered with a glacier a mile thick 10,000 years ago. So yeah, sea levels can rise a lot, but um, you're getting, you know, some of the, the observed increase is due to the ground actually dropping because you pump water out of the ground and the ground subsides. So, you know, that's happening in some cities. Uh, they just extract groundwater. And so, you know, the ground slowly uh, falls and hence you see sea level rising. But again, I just don't, you know, I'm not a climate scientist. I don't see, but I don't see looking at the data 
where's the sudden change that these uh, the Rutgers study must be predicting that says sea level will increase several feet over the next couple of decades. That's just, I just don't get it. So let's let's say, um, you know, wor- worst case scenario, we've had this conversation, you know, as far as the human contribution to, because it's easy for a simple mind of someone that doesn't have the, the depth of knowledge that you have to hear, well, glaciers hold the water, the glaciers melt, the water's going to rise, obviously we'll be flooded. So let's now take the other side, uh, instead of raising taxes on people and and relocating everyone in this panic, uh, we want to have a clean atmosphere. And I, I haven't met anybody on the conservative side uh, or the liberal side yet that is in favor of pollution. I think most people are pretty much in favor of clean water and clean air. Sure. Um, but you know, with your work with the Manhattan Institute, your work with Affordable Energy New Jersey, we've had some of the cleanest air in a century in America and certainly in the Northeast when it comes to uh, what we've done with natural gas and nuclear. So can you speak to where are we as far as our environment and how much of the changes that could take place under all these measures being proposed under the governor's um, uh, master energy plan, how much would that even impact climate if we accepted that human behavior was a big part of it? Well, if you, um, New Jersey, but New Jersey has an emissions inventory. And I think the, the last study the state did was for the year 2019. And they said that total greenhouse gas emissions, or carbon emissions were about 98 million tons. That sounds like a whole lot. Um, but the world, world carbon emissions, according to the uh, BP St- World Energy Statistics publication in 2019, were 35 billion tons, billion with a B. So if New Jersey somehow tomorrow could eliminate all of its carbon emissions, it would be the equivalent of less than a, one day's worth of world CO2 emissions. It, it simply doesn't, ha- it's not gonna have any impact on climate whatsoever. Um, the other thing that's interesting, it's, you know, um, I've got a report coming out on elect- the electric vehicle mandates p- that are part of the energy master plan. And if you look at that and you compare, New Jersey gets its electricity from something called PJM, which is a 14 state consortium that operates all the high voltage trans uh, transmission lines and about 1400 power plants. And it coordinates all those operations to make sure electricity is reliable and as cost effective as possible. So when, when somebody from New Jersey, you know, switches on a light, they're getting electricity from PJM. Um, they may think it's coming from, you know, that, that wind turbine offshore, a solar cell, uh, you know, up the road, but it's not. It's really all just part of the grid. So um, what I looked at is what happens when you compare an electric vehicle, which pollutes via the electricity and versus a new internal combustion vehicle. And what I found was that the comparison was based on PGM's emissions in 2019, especially at night when you'd normally be charging most electric vehicles, the sulfur dioxide emissions would increase by a factor of 50. 
That's five zero. Uh, because gasoline has almost no sulfur, but in PJM, you've got coal plants, natural gas plants, they all emit some sulfur dioxide. Mm -hmm. NOx emissions, another thing that's in, in uh, you know, an air pollutant that, that affects health, uh, would increase by three, three times. Uh, particulate emissions, even, even an advocate, uh, uh, charge EVC, which is advocating uh, a complete changeover to electric vehicles for the state, admitted that particulate emissions would go up. Now, I couldn't calculate those because PGM doesn't release particulate emissions data. Wait, what was the, Doc, what was the second one after uh, sulfur dioxide? Ox oxides of nitrogen, otherwise known as NOx. MOX? NOx, N-O-X. And, you know, NOx will form ozone, ground level ozone, and that lead, that has supposedly health impacts. Got it. So, so the people who are going to be charging their EVs for the most part are going to be causing more pollution to be admitted. Now, granted, it won't be emitted out the tailpipe on the street, but instead what you'll get is pollution emitted from plants west of New Jersey. And as you probably know, the prevailing winds are from west, west to east. <laughs> the pollution just comes back and gets dumped on New Jersey anyway. So, and as for the carbon emissions, uh, I did a calculation. If you replaced all the, the uh, if, if you had all the electric vehicles and somehow they were all um, powered with absolute emissions-free electricity, um, and I'm just looking up the, uh, uh, the number, the carbon emission savings um, would amount to uh, between 21 and 2035, 2021 this year, and 2035, you're, the state's calling for 2 million electric vehicles to be on the road by 2035. By, if you, if, let's suppose that um, all the, the electricity was perfectly clean, emissions-free, in that 14, 15 year period, uh, the CO2 savings would, would be the equivalent of 11 hours worth of emissions, world CO2 emissions in 2019. <laughs> so the idea that, that say an EV mandate or a mandate, New Jersey's mandate for zero carbon by 2050 is gonna somehow save the climate, which apparently is the, the primary reason for the EMP, it's just nonsensical. It's not that the emissions reduction is minuscule. So let, let's talk about that. You know, I, I think that's one of the things where in, I read a great article, I may have mentioned it last time, uh, in defense of CO2, Dr. William Happer at Princeton University wrote a really thoughtful piece. Uh, you had mentioned something, I think, in our conversation last time about that, that you know, carbon dioxide is not, um, uh, CO2 is not a pollutant. And I think there's a growing number of people that are educated <laughs> with what many of us call propaganda in our, our schools, our secondary schools, our primary schools, where the kids are taught that these natural emissions are poison and CO2 is a poison. So therefore, the minute you start talking about carbon emissions, immediately people start equating that with something horrible. Can you address that and put it in simple terms for uh, just the average person to say when they're at the dinner party, they're like, well, you know, this CO2 pollution is horrible. We got to do everything we can to stop it. What would you say to that? Well, 
if there was no carbon dioxide, um, life on this planet wouldn't exist, or at least most of it wouldn't. I'm sure some stuff under the sea, uh, that, you know, bacteria that eats sulfur or whatever, 30,000 feet below the surface uh, would exist. But um, plants, once CO2 levels drop to less than 150 parts per million, um, plants die. And in the last glacial age, CO2 levels actually fell to about 180. So it was close to the point where um, uh, plants could no longer survive. So CO2 is not a pollutant. Um, it's, it's necessary for life. I mean, plants use CO2. That's what they, they basically feed on. They, they take in carbon dioxide and they, they spit out oxygen. So to, to think that CO2 is a pollutant that is somehow uh, killing us and, and it's poisonous to breathe, that's just simply not true. We can, again, we couldn't live on this planet if there was no carbon dioxide. So what do you say if you're in a debate, someone says to you, well, doc, that's all well and good. However, there are limits that NASA, the US Navy put on CO2 levels for healthy uh, exchange of oxygen for sailors and, and uh, astronauts, et cetera. And they cap it somewhere around, I believe, the 5,000 parts per million level, maybe 3,000 at some level. Um, but our rise in the words of the, uh, the panickers who all saw the inconvenient truth and took that as gospel and have now put 20 years of policy behind it, uh, we'll say we went from 350 to 450. Now we're in danger of being at 500. Isn't it this rapid rise that could get us close to a ceiling that could kill us all? What do you say to that? Well, I guess I would say that's nonsense. Um, <laughs> it, it's just, again, yeah, current CO2 levels are around 450 parts per million. Uh, the other thing people probably don't know is greenhouses. They add carbon dioxide into, you know, uh, greenhouses to make plants grow faster. Um, so, you know, and, and those are at much higher levels, you know, like a thousand parts per million. So, yeah, if you if you went and tried to breathe pure carbon dioxide, you would eventually die uh, because we need oxygen. But to suggest that from the current levels CO2 levels are going to go up to 5,000, 10,000, whatever. There's just no evidence of, for that at all. That, that's simply what they're doing is you take a trend and you extrapolate it forever. Um, here's an example of why that doesn't work. For many years, um, the average number of drivers in cars or, or you know, passengers and drivers in cars was falling. Well, if, you know, from three down to two to one and a half, whatever. So if you extrapolated that data, you could show that, well, eventually um, the number of passenger people driving in a car is going to fall below one. Well, that's not really possible because somebody's got to be driving. So just doing these linear extrapolations with, a, you know, taking a ruler and drawing a straight line forever, it doesn't make sense. You can't do that because you end up with results that are nonsensical. And that's what a lot of these people, I believe, are doing. And I, I don't wanna say that there's no impact on climate. You know, sure, man has an impact on the climate, absolutely. 
you can see that especially at the local level and you know on on broader levels it's probably you know it's probably true that we're, we have an impact on climate based on you know what we do in forestry practices agriculture all that sure it, it obviously has an impact but to suggest that it's going to be some catastrophic you know what is it eight years from now I think it was yeah. 12 years in 2018 now. I think AOC said we have 12 years left on the planet. That's it. Yeah, but that was a few years ago. So <laughs> True. Fair enough. Fair enough. You know, to think that, uh, well, on April 7th, uh, 2030, the world's going to come to an end at, at uh, you know, 2.45 p.m. That's just nonsense. Do you, in your research and in your travels, is there a state or a nation that has gotten it right? Uh, I, I often use the example of France, where they put 80% of their grid is on nuclear power, so their emissions are very low. It's very modern. It's very reliable. Um, and then you've got states across this country where, you know, we know, if not for the innovation of fracking and the expanse of that, I mean, you saw what the economy did in places like Pennsylvania and North Dakota during the boom over the past few years. Is there a state that has an energy policy or a country that you would say, okay, if New Jersey would just follow a couple of points from this policy, you could really have affordable energy, clean air for everyone? Um, well, the, the, the states with the lowest cost electricity are actually the Pacific Northwest because they have a lot of old federal hydropower. So you've got all the dams on the Columbia River. Well, we can't build those anymore. There really aren't any sites. Um, so, you know, I think the other states, states that are relying heavily on natural gas, states that have nuclear, I mean, New Jersey has several nuclear plants. Mm -hmm. But what people may not realize, um, in 2018, the Oyster Creek nuclear plant was forced to shut down uh, because uh, the state ordered Exelon to install cooling towers, which would have cost billions of dollars to do. Um, and Exxon said, well, given that the plant's license only goes another 10 years, this isn't worth it. We'll never get the money back. So they just shut it down and environmentalists were delighted. Um, you've got two more nuclear plants, uh, I think Hope Creek and uh, oh, the other name is- Salem. Is Salem, thank you. Um, they start, their licenses end, start expiring, and they've already been relicensed mm -hmm. by the National, uh, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission in 2036 through 2046. So, you know, the, and if environmentalists really are, are smart, then they should be advocating nuclear power. And some environmentalists have realized that, hey, we have to have nukes. We can't just rely on wind and solar. Nuclear, because it's 24-7, is the most reliable form of electricity there is. You, um, uh, with that, uh, let's just flip back then to natural gas in just terms of infrastructure. Uh, you know, we've talked about how there are millions of miles of pipeline throughout this country, and, and you know, 75% of New Jersey households uh, uh, heat their homes, run their stoves, all of that based on natural gas. And there's a, there's a lack of willingness from the current government to put any money behind infrastructure repair, which means a lot more of that is going to be transported open road trucks. Can you just talk briefly about uh, what's the difference in terms of human safety 
uh, and pollution between having trucks transport natural gas versus the pipelines? Well, it's it's obviously much more risky to have a truck or train uh, transporting natural gas or oil uh, than a pipeline. Uh, you know, people when the Keystone pipeline was canceled by the Biden administration, the permit again. Um, what people didn't seem to realize that all that oil is going to get crude oil from Alberta is going to get extracted anyway. It's just going to be delivered down here via rail and mm -hmm. truck, and it's going to be shipped off. More of it will be shipped off to China. So, so not only will it be less safe, it'll be a higher likelihood of, of oil spills from accidents, but actually emissions will go up because, well, you're now you're trans, you know, it's a it's a more inefficient way of moving the 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 crude oil, and you're moving it a far farther. You're going to move it a lot of it to China. So, you know, in terms of why this is an a victory for the environment, you got me. It's, it, when it makes pollution worse and it's riskier uh, in terms of spills, how that's a victory for the environment, well, I don't know. Uh, and, and you'll see the same thing in New Jersey. If you, if you ban pipelines, you've seen it in New, York, in, in New York State and around New York City. Well, because they can't build any new natural gas pipelines, to get enough natural gas to customers, it has to be shipped generally by truck. They have to move it to distribution areas, uh, you know, truck it in. Not only is that very costly, it's dangerous. Can you speak to California? Our governor, Governor Murphy, is fond of, of talking about his campaign staff talked about it. It was, it was one of the things that he ran on, as insane as it sounds to many of us, uh, to reflect some of the great policies, in their words, of the state of California. But we know California has had energy troubles. What do you attribute that to in terms of a comparison? You know, the blackouts and the brownouts that Californians go through. Well, California relies very heavily on solar power and to a smaller extent, wind power. Um, California, you cannot build any new generating plants in California. Uh, they, you've already seen San Onofre, a nuclear plant shut down and PG&E is shutting down its Diablo Canyon plant in 2025 because of environmental opposition to that plant's continued operation. So not only are emissions going to increase, but what happens is you get so much solar power generated during the day in, you know, the desert areas of, of California. Um, that the, the grid can't handle it because there's not enough demand during the middle of the day. You know, demand for electricity peaks when people get home from work at night, you know, you turn the lights on and in the early morning. Well, guess what? In the early morning and at night, there is no solar power. So rather than have any, you know, the, the electricity is being generated at precisely the wrong time. And California calls this something, called, it's called the duck curve. I guess it looks like a duck for some reason. Um, and so when there's clouds, you don't get the solar. Well, they don't have enough. California relies very heavily on the imports of electricity. It relies on electricity, hydroelectric power imported from the Pacific Northwest. Uh, and it re relies on, on coal and natural gas uh, generated power from, you know, Arizona, Nevada, and Wyoming. 
They don't like to talk about that. But the reason you get blackouts is there's two two reasons. One, you don't have enough renewable power to meet demand. And there's almost, there's very little battery storage. Uh, California wants to increase that, but I mean, it's incredibly expensive. Um, and then, uh, you know, you have a problem like in, in the last California blackout, you had some clouds over the desert. Well, when, you're, when your entire electric system and reliability depends on what's today's weather forecast, <laughs> that's not a very reliable power system. And, and it's especially ironic when, when the policies are calling for switching everything to electricity. Get rid of your natural gas furnaces, get rid of your natural gas water heaters, your stoves, uh, make all vehicles electric. You're going to, the importance of reliable electric supplies goes up and up. And yet you start relying on wind and solar power, which is intermittent. It makes no sense. And so what they're going to have to do is build huge quantities of battery storage, which is, Currently, it's simply not affordable. And the other thing you'll, you know, people will say, well, battery costs are going down. Well, they have come down. But, um, you know, Tesla, for example, just raised the price of its vehicles last month. Mm -hmm. um, what these people never consider when they, when they just, again, extrapolate curves that so, show battery costs dropping forever is, is basic economics, <clears throat> excuse me, supply and demand. Well, when you force people to buy electric vehicles uh, and you talk about massive increases, battery storage, you need a hell of a lot more batteries. So the demand for batteries is going to just skyrocket. Well, uh, go ahead. No, I was, was going to say, and how do they make these batteries? Uh, I'd like to understand, is that something, I mean, I, I've heard some criticisms of the batteries saying that that what the environmentalists don't understand is that even in the creation of these batteries, you're you are actually increasing your uh, your output of pollutants. Sure. Um, well, for a typical thousand-pound vehicle battery, uh, my Institute to colleague Mark Mills uh, determined that it takes about uh, one hundred thousand pounds of raw materials. Now, wow. that's most of that is being mined uh, overseas because environmentalists don't want any mining in the country. And you have a lot of uh, specialized minerals like, um, you know, you have to mine lithium. Co cobalt, for example, is primarily coming from the Congo in Africa where they use uh, child labor and slave labor. It, the, the employment conditions are simply horrible. Um, China, produces most of the, the world's rare earth metals. Those are used in batteries. They're also used in solar and, and, wind, and wind turbines. So, you know, and those places have, compared to us, their environmental standards are extremely lax. So basically what environmentalists are saying is, well, if the pollution is somewhere in somebody else's backyard, we don't care. Well, that strikes me as somewhat hypocritical. Um, you know, and the amount it, Toyota has said, the, the head of, of Toyota Motor, that's the largest automaker in the world, has said there isn't, a, you cannot meet the 
if all these electric vehicle mandates, there simply isn't enough electricity to power the, power it. Uh, it can't happen. They've looked at the numbers and said, these just don't add up. And similarly with the materials for, for all, you know, once you start uh, saying, we're gonna have hundreds of millions of electric vehicles, we're gonna electrify everything, we're gonna have tons and tons of battery storage facilities, there's, you know, the material costs alone are going to skyrocket because there's no there's no technological advances really occurring in mining and and metal processing. Mm. So yes, the battery technology may be getting better, but you still use a lot of raw materials, and that still costs money. And as as you increase the demand for all these batteries, well, what are the suppliers going to do? They're going to raise prices. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Of course, they will. So what's the solution as we wrap up, maybe if there's some takeaway for, especially for young people who are listening, um, you know, the, everything you're saying is grounded in science and fact and the reality of the economy. Um, but if you bring these things up, you either get called uh, a polluter, a climate denier, um, and anything in between, a crackpot, a quack, you know, the, these ideas are often dismissed and young people tend to just accept what they're told because it sounds good that we'll live in some fantasy world of uh, a car that gets you to the hospital in under five minutes and it won't pollute the environment ever. And people think, what's wrong with that? If we could, that sounds great. Uh, we know it's not practical, but what do you say to someone? How do you deal with this with, um, with people that you encounter that want to dismiss you as not credible? Well, I guess what I would tell people, especially, uh, you know, kids in school, uh, college kids, uh, people just starting out as one, don't give in to the panic. Uh, it's being hyped. The panic, whether it's climate change, whether it's the double mutant COVID-19 variant <laughs> that the press is starting to, it's, yeah. that sells papers. Yeah. And, and eyeball. That's all they want to do. Clicks. The other yeah. thing is start asking some basic questions. For example, um, we've been told that we can't let temperatures rise more than two degrees above pre-industrial levels. Well, why, why is it? Well, one, what's pre-industrial? When is that? What, what, what time period is that? Depends who you ask, actually. Um, and why was the temperature optimal then? We were just coming out of the little ice age, uh, or a very mini, a mini ice age in the 1700s. Uh, you know, George Washington crossed the Delaware because it was frozen over at Christmas. Right. Um, so why was that temperature optimal? What does that even mean for the Earth? So you know, and a lot. Of, the other thing about climate models, people should uh, realize. They're models. Mo one, one famous scientist said, I can make a model tie my shoes because you know it depends what you put in. You can make it say anything. And I'm, I've been a modeler. I know that. Um, so look at, you know, if you look at all these forecasts of impending doom, ask yourself and ask the people you know, pushing this stuff, well, how accurate are those models? How, how accurate have they been predicting actual observed temperatures. Turns out they're not accurate at all. 
So again, well, if that's, you know, if you're a forecaster like I was to start my career, if, if my model, my forecast model can't even reproduce actual data I have, then my model is garbage. It's yeah. not, you know, I'm not going to use it to predict something that's happening in a hundred years. It's, <laughs> it's useless. So, you know, um, ask them to explain it. The Roman Empire thrived when actually CO2 levels and, te well, and temperatures were higher than they are today. Why is that? Why weren't they all, you know, dying? You know, what happened then? So, and people try to, you know, the advocates for the, the um, panic try to just ignore all that stuff. And it's just ask basic questions rather than believing all of it. It's reasonable to say, yeah, but what about this and this and this? Um, so, you know, don't, again, the most important thing is don't give in to the panic porn. I love it. And you said a great thing, though, Doc. You know, you're right. They can barely predict the weather tomorrow, but they can tell you where we're going to be in 100 years sure. yeah. with absolute certainty, right? <laughs> well, Doc, always great to talk to you. Um, we've been talking with Dr. Jonathan Lesser, who is working with Affordable Energy New Jersey and has uh, written and, and researched extensively the impact of the governor's master plan, which still out of Trenton, we have no cost associated with it, but uh, we can add a multi-billion dollar price tag that's going to certainly hurt the average working and middle-class New Jersey and uh, making energy less accessible and less affordable. Uh, he is also an adjunct fellow at the Manhattan Institute. We'll certainly have him back on again. Doc, thank you. Always great. Great to see you. Thanks for having me, Bill. I appreciate it. We'll see you next month. Take care. Bye-bye.